previously on the Sports Refuge Podcast. You need to mention this person's name if you're telling the story of the game of baseball. And if we can tell the story of the game without you, then maybe you're not a Hall of Famer. From Delaware, almost live, this is the Sports Refuge Podcast. This is the weekly podcast featuring interviews with guests discussing their connection to sports. And now, here's your host, Earl Holland. It's time for episode 99 of the Sports Refuge podcast, the show where guests share their connection to sports. I'm your host, Earl Holland. Following an unusual 2020, where the pandemic dramatically altered much of the way we lived, 2021 was somewhat of a return to normalcy. 2021 was also a year in which some of my more interesting interviews for the Sports Refuge podcast took place as well, featuring several intriguing stories. In this episode, I'll be featuring excerpts from the previous episodes from 2021, including chats with guests Vanessa Junkin, Kelly Cullen, Destiny Morgan Davis, Scott Johnson and Victoria Robinson, and Jenny Hopkinson. To start off our compilation episode, I talked with Vanessa Junkin about how the pandemic affected her 2020 running year, as well as broaching a topic about a close call she had on one of her runs. So I was just thinking about this, and 2019 does seem like so long ago just because 2020 was such a different year. But 2019 was a pretty good year, I guess, as far as my running. So I usually like to run two marathons a year and then kind of base my training around that. There's a lot of other races that I do like every year, given last year. But in 2019, I ran the Salisbury Marathon for the first time, which will be having its fourth race this year. So I'm actually the coach for that race. And then this year, I'm going to run the half. And then I also ran the Marine Corps Marathon, which was actually on my birthday. And it had the worst weather at that time that I had for a race. I recently was saying the race I did this Saturday actually surpassed the Marine Corps Marathon 2019. But it was a torrential downpour and my feet were basically destroyed. But I was able to finish and then I got to pace a few races in 2019, which I enjoy doing um, for half marathon. So I will keep up a consistent pace for the entire half marathon to try to help people reach their goals. And it was a good year. And I've definitely missed some races I've been able to happen in 2020, but I definitely miss the social aspect afterwards, like hanging out with everybody and not having to worry about, you know, how close you get to everyone and all kinds of new things that we now have to worry about because of COVID. What is your body feeling like after a race? Describe the pain or whatever you're feeling once you hit the finish line. Yeah, so it definitely depends on the race. I was extremely sore after Marine Corps because even though you do a lot of training leading up to a long race, but because you are attempting to go at a faster speed than your training pace, it's just harder on your body and that race since it was a downpour there was a part where you ran through the water then later it got hot so my feet were kind of like pruny and they kind of like froze in like a not froze like as in being cold but they kind of like were in a position where like the skin was kind of folded I had some blisters a lot of like leg soreness so because that race is so huge they were unable to have an in-person race since COVID, but at that time, it's multiple thousands of people, maybe like 30,000 or something like that. So when you're finished the race, you have to go 
I thought it felt like such a long walk afterwards to get anything you left in a drop bag, to pick up, like, food, get a photo, like, so, but I think it was maybe, like, half a mile or something, but that's a lot after you just finished 26.2 miles, so I was just totally ready to sit down and relax. I think then we still walked back to the place we were staying, so it was a little bit more walking, but at least I knew I was getting closer to sitting so and I would say like for a shorter race sometimes you know you might still be in pain but the longer the race for me definitely the more pain I'm in just because it's more unusual in the distance I guess and trying to run faster than a training run what's a part of your body that aches the most that people wouldn't expect I know you mentioned your feet you know your legs but anything else that really people wouldn't expect for a runner to have soreness and fatigue in well one thing think would be less expected was another race that I did last year actually was the 25k which is in the Elkton area and it was extremely hilly and where I live in Salisbury and anywhere around here on the shore is very flat and that race was extremely hilly so my back started to hurt a lot like my lower back I think because I was like leaning forward trying to go up the hills and things like that. So, I mean, sometimes you just kind of sore everywhere, but I I guess that's a little more unusual than like legs or feet because those would be expected. How do you sort of decompress after a run like that? I know they say you got to keep your legs going, especially because the lactic acid will build up and things like that. But what do you do after the race? How do you just sort of try to wind down so you're able to even sleep comfortably later in the day? Sleeping is never a problem for me. I can always pretty much sleep, especially after a race. And after a marathon or I have done 150K and then started one this weekend, wasn't able to finish. But for the marathons and 50K that I did, I took off a whole week afterwards because you are sore for the next, for me, it's like probably about two to three days. And after that, I just think it's kind of good to just give my body a rest, let it get kind of back to normal after stressing it a lot but I also like to go to other areas so a lot of times I am active at least in like walking around I like to get something good to eat get something to drink you know just kind of celebrate and it was fun after the Marine Corps which starts and ends in Arlington like if you go to a restaurant or something or a bar or something like that and you would see other people and then you could talk about like how crazy it was and what the weather was like and any race you do if it's like a big race like that there's usually other runners in town and you can kind of have something in common just by if you're wearing your medal or you're wearing a shirt or something like that from it. I think it's something really you look forward to when you finish a race. You can hang out with your friends. A lot of times I travel to a lot of races with one of my friends. Or if it's a local race, I often know a lot of people. Sometimes they have like a band or something like that. Kind of like a very celebratory atmosphere. And you can just kind of enjoy all having completed distance or meeting a goal. Or And of course, I really enjoy running with people. I always feel like the miles go faster when I'm talking to somebody. I like to talk a lot, so I will talk to whoever I'm running with. And if you get caught up in a conversation, you almost like forget that you're running sometimes. I mean, at least if you're going at an easy enough pace. I mean, sometimes you want to know that you're running, but other times if it's like a long run or something, you might be, you know, it's good to have some distractions. (laughs) 
What's the craziest or uniquest conversation that you've had during a run? Um, I don't really know like one specific conversation, but I mean, I know it's been said in many groups that sometimes you feel like you can say anything on a run or, you know, like it's just kind of like talking about anything, really. I can't think of specific examples, but... You know, I feel like when you're talking to your friends, when you're running, like, you kind of know that they're, like, somebody that you can trust and you can talk to, I guess. So, I think the running community started taking COVID seriously pretty pretty early. Luckily, I got to do a few races before COVID really started becoming a major issue in the U.S. So, it was, like, the last week of February, the weekend of February 29th to March 1st. I got to watch the Olympic marathon trials in Atlanta. And I also interviewed some participants for Run Washington. So that was a really cool experience. And then the day after that, they had the Publix Atlanta Marathon, which anybody could enter. It wasn't like the Olympic trials. So then I ran the marathon there. And then two weeks later, I was supposed to meet up with a group of Bib Rave pros. I think it was two weeks later in Virginia Beach for the Shamrock marathon weekend I was gonna do the half and an 8k that was canceled very close to the date probably that week because I felt like you know at that time people didn't really know how serious it was people were gonna try to go forward with events but pretty much everything either got canceled or went virtual so I ended up running that virtually and then the Salisbury um, I had signed up for the half that also went virtual that was the first weekend of April So there weren't really any in-person races for several months. We also, I'm a big part of the Eastern Shore Running Club, and we have weekly group runs, and we stopped those for about three months. Now we have different precautions in place, like wearing a mask to the run. You can take it off while you're running, but you have it on before and after. Keep your distance in mind. Um, Don't come to the run if you have any symptoms or if you've been exposed or things like that. So we have some precautions in place, but for about three months, we didn't have group runs and we had people submit selfies to our Facebook group that we have. And then I would make them into a collage just to kind of like have some togetherness in a time when we couldn't physically be together. Like when we had the stay at home order and things like that. And we had some fun different themes, like somebody suggested doing like different colors. So like one day we would all wear red and then like that would be a collage. And then the next day we all wear orange, something like that. So um, then the first race I did that was since March, since I did that marathon, was a trail race called the Nailer Mill 7K. Um, It's on some trails in Salisbury and it was a max of 100 runners. So it was small and it was local, only about maybe 15 minute drive away. Because I have not really traveled for any races more than about an hour since COVID. You know, I used to enjoy traveling for races, but I'm not really traveling right now. So doing anything locally, but that was the first in-person one I did. And there was a health screening, mask wearing before it started, kind of like the group runs. And then I was able to do some more in-person races since then. But there's definitely things that I miss about the, you know, not every race was able to happen and races aren't having after parties anymore. So I think the running community adapted pretty quickly, but, you know, it can't be exactly the same as it used to be. And there's a lot more virtual events now. I was going to ask you about the accident collision, I guess, using journalism talk (laughs) as opposed to, you know, accident. But What happened there and just walking us through that whole experience, what it was like? 
Yeah, so I went for a run. It was January 15th near my house. It was dark because it was after work. Um, about Probably left the house about 5.30-ish. And I was just going to try to get in a little short run before um, I had this yoga class that I was going to do from home at 6. So I knew I didn't have really very much time, but I was like, maybe I can get in like two or two and a half miles or something like that. So I went for a run and then I was trying to cross a street that was near my house. At first I blamed myself, but then the more I thought about it, I was like, I was wearing a lighted vest. So there's things I think I could have done better. And also I basically just want runners and drivers to be aware, like no matter who you are. I mean, it's obviously important to to look out, but I was trying to cross the street and I did not see a car coming at all. And then I just saw the grill of an SUV and then I don't remember actually being hit, but at some point I, I mean, I didn't pass out or anything, but I think my brain blocked out physically being hit. So then I was ending up sitting on the curb. Um, I was bleeding a lot, but wasn't extremely clear where it was coming from. And then the person that hit me called 911 as well as a neighbor that I guess had seen what happened or heard something. So the police and ambulance came really fast. And then I went to the hospital and I had some scrapes and bruises. And I also had to get some staples in my head for a wound. But I didn't have any internal injuries and I didn't have any breaks. So I took off two weeks from running to rest because I was really sore. I would say a similar soreness to having run a long race, but it lasted longer for me to like feel a little bit normal. But it did gradually get better. And two weeks later, I did go out for my first run. So I was listening to music. So I have been more aware of that. Just trying to make sure that I don't get too in the zone, that I'm always making sure I know what's going on. And I was wearing a lighted vest, but it is very important to be visible, wear something like a lighted vest or something reflective or a headlamp. There's all kinds of different things that are made that you can be more visible. And I also want to use the opportunity to advocate for crosswalks because where I was crossing is right next to a, it's basically like a six-way intersection and there aren't any crosswalks there. So to avoid the six-way intersection, I crossed like in the middle of a road where there's only one road rather than six, but then there's no crosswalk there either. So, so it's kind of a, not a great spot to cross. So I had crossed there before, but something I want to get involved with because since I do run so much and I don't want it to happen to anybody else. And I still have a few more questions if, if you're okay with that. First of all, did they hit you from the side? How did that occur? And did you tumble? Was there like a moment in the air or something like that? So I was hit on my right side, kind of like near like my thigh waist area, like on the side. I don't think I really went in the air because I don't know exactly what happened, but I didn't like go up on the car or anything like that. I'm thinking what, and I think she tried to swerve to hit me less or as small amount as she could. So I kind of was hit on the side of the car. I'm assuming that what happened was I was kind of like pushed to the ground by the car, but not like flying through the air. And getting hit, I know you talked about maybe the brain maybe blocked it out, but mm -hmm. what's the first thought once it all happens? What are you feeling? What's the first thing going through your head? Well, the first thing that was going through my head was actually this 
So I took a CPR class a couple years ago, and I have done another CPR class since then. But this first one that I went to, the guy had been an EMT, I think, for like 20 or 30 years or something like that. And he was talking about this early case where somebody um, was like in a car accident. It wasn't like a runner or anything, but they were... She was hit or involved in a car crash at some point, and then she was fine, and then she died like 30 minutes later or something. So that was kind of a worry of mine. Maybe it was a little bit irrational, but I was just hoping that it wasn't going to get worse because I was actually a little bit surprised that like I was coherent. I felt pretty normal except for that I had like blood on my hands and I like didn't know like what was happening. Like not didn't know what was happening, but I was just a little bit in shock. And wondering how that could have happened just because, I mean, I am still a little bit confused as to how it happened because I do always look before I cross the street. So I'm kind of like, how did I not see an SUV there? How did she not see me? Like, how did this happen? But luckily, you know, everybody, like the EMTs and the people at the hospital, doctors, nurses, etc., like everybody was very calm. So after more time passed. I mean, nobody seemed worried about me dying, really, except for me. So that was good. <laughs> yeah, I can only imagine, you just look at it from your point of view perspective, where you're just looking out and seeing everything. You're seeing the lights, you're seeing the car, you're seeing the driver just try to find out if you're okay. That mm -hmm. has to be super jarring. It was, because I was mentally there, but I think I was just, like, so... I don't know. I just kind of didn't. I was just shocked, really. I think that's probably the best way to say it. The person that hit me was really nice, which was good. Like, she gave me her mask, actually. That was actually one of my first thoughts, too, because I didn't have a mask with me. And I was like, I don't have a mask. And not that anybody really seemed to care, but I have been wearing my mask everywhere. And it felt weird to not have one being around people. And they were like, probably like, that is not a huge concern, but <laughs> the person that hit me gave me her mask. And, you know, like I said, she called 911. Obviously, she stopped. I heard of an, an incident in, I think it was in Texas, that happened very recently where a woman was killed after being hit. And it was a hit and run, which I can't even imagine. So that was a completely different incident, but obviously very shocking. And just something to be aware of that I didn't really think I would be hit by a car. Who does? So it's just something to kind of keep in mind. Like, hey, this can happen to you even if you think you're careful. Yeah, and I always think about some of the stories covered in the LA Times. I for, I'm trying to figure out what the street was. It might have been like near Toady Tank. Guy was running and a car just piles him over. Yeah. And it's not even like, I can't say yours was low impact because I'm not sure what it was. But it was a higher impact, faster speed. I don't know what happened with the driver. I don't even think the driver did hang around too long, but it was a bad case. And you think about that, how, and I, that was more broad daylight too, mm -hmm. as opposed to uh, you were talking about a later in the day. Mm -hmm. And it was a little confusing that something like that that happened in broad daylight. I know everybody's going to be the fact that they're scared, but in a situation like that, you have to stick around and just not even for your own case, but for the health of the person that you hit because definitely I assume it's the same way they do it. If someone hit a deer, even yeah. though a lot of people probably pull off when they're not supposed to, you're supposed to wait, report it to the police. And then once that's all taken care of, then you can go unless everybody's yeah. all of a sudden worried about their insurance. Yeah. And if somebody did, for example, I mean, if you leave a deer or 
even worse, a person. I mean, if you leave somebody in the road, they could get hit again. They could get hurt. I mean, depending on where they are. I'm very thankful that I didn't get actually run over. I think that would have been a lot worse. That's why I'm thinking I got, like, bumped, I guess. I mean, I had to go to the hospital, but it was more like a bump and a push rather than getting plowed down or something. I noticed in your blog post when you mentioned when you were getting the examinations that you had found out you had some fractured ribs that healed as well? Yeah, that was actually just totally unrelated to being hit, but I had a really painful rib I guess it was two ribs in probably like November December I'd been coughing a lot I never had COVID or anything but sometimes I have like breathing issues when I'm running so I had gotten an inhaler about probably a year or so ago maybe a year and a half and then I also recently got like a medicine for that and I had gone to the chiropractor because this rib pain was just so bad like if I coughed or sneezed it was like I had to like brace my whole body for the pain. And yeah, so I was like kind of surprised to find out that I actually had fractured them. And I'm glad they're healed now. Now I feel fine. But that was a surprise. You mentioned bracing for the pain when anytime you had that. What is the best description of the pain that came from the ribs? I guess like kind of like just like a shooting pain. It was just like super uncomfortable. Like I felt like the less I moved, the less it would hurt. But I mean, you kind of have to move when you're coughing or sneezing. So I would just try to cough, like do like a half cough or, you know, something that wasn't as much movement. Because I was going to say, it was like, well, there's somebody punching you like in the ribs or something. But I'm like, I don't think Vanessa would have ever gotten in a fist fight before. I mean, <laughs> I haven't. So I guess I don't really know what to compare to as far as being punched. I was going to say, unless you were going to say, well, there's a funny story that happened where <laughs> I did at one point. <laughs> Unfortunately, well, not unfortunately, but fortunately not. <laughs> You honestly never think about the physical toll that running can take, let alone the dangers that go along with the activity. I'm glad Vanessa was able to share those experiences in that previous interview. Up next are excerpts from an interview with former prep softball star and University of Maryland Eastern Shore pitcher Kelly Cullen, where she explains her love for the sport, what led to her playing at UMES, and what led to her walking away from the sport. What led to you playing softball as we get right out of the gate? I think a lot that led with it. I started off playing Fruitland Little League. My family was big into sports. So where I went from playing Little League baseball, I went into Wicomico Rec and Parks, into their softball league. And then I met Coach Kim Fitzgerald, who was the Bennett softball coach. I met her. I had classes with her at Bennett Middle. And then I ultimately went to James and Bennett after and started my high school career. Yeah, it was a lot that built up to it because I played like travel ball and stuff like that. So a lot of time, I'm very dedicated to it. And it was just a lot of fun. You just met a lot of new people and I like to travel and stuff. So the travel ball portion of it, it really pushed me to want to really play and be serious in high school. I know you briefly mentioned playing Little League Baseball. How long did you end up playing before you ended up going towards the direction of softball? Oh, gosh. Maybe, I don't think I got into like the older years of playing Little League. I think I played like a couple years Little League and then I transitioned over to the softball part of it. Yeah, I don't really remember much of playing the baseball part just because I was so young. Like I started when I was five. So softball really is what I've done my whole life. To you, what is the best way to describe how a meaningful softball has been to you? To me, I think, 
it's been a very meaningful. It's brought me close to so many people. Growing up, playing travel ball, I mean, I've met people from all over. I've traveled all over. I've been coached by amazing coaches who they really have pushed me to where I'm at today. My family, they've traveled all over with me. I mean, yes, they've sat at like tons and tons and tons of softball games, but those are times they'll never get back. We've all enjoyed the traveling teammates. I still talk to people today that I played with when I was like 10. So, you know, lifelong friends, stuff like that. And it's just the fact of being a part of something. It means a lot to me. I don't even really have words for it. The game means a lot to me. What did you prefer, the atmosphere of the high school softball level or the travel ball? I always feel like there's (laughs) two different uh, experiences when you look at them from different aspects. Yeah, I think, honestly, I think both of them because they both offered so much different things. So like with the travel ball, I enjoyed, you know, competing. I'm not saying there's not a good competition level in the Bayside, but I'm saying you see all different types of levels of competition when you're playing travel ball. So I think being with my friends there, people who I'd grown up with, being able to play with them, playing against my other friends and learning so much about the game. I think that's what I enjoyed the most. And obviously the traveling because I love to travel. That's what I enjoyed most about travel ball. With high school ball, it was completely different because You go to school, you get out, you go to practice, whatever. So there, if I could go back and do it over again, I'd do it. I would do it all the time because it was just so much fun. You just meet so many different people who like if you were in the hallways at school and you didn't play a sport or you all weren't involved in the same type of sport, like these are people you would never talk to a day in your life. But now it's like, like I said with travel ball before, like I'm still friends with these people who, you know, I played with my freshman year play with sophomore year. I'm still friends with them today. And it's people I would have never talked to before if we didn't play softball together. And just the coaches, like I have a very good relationship with my coaches still today. It's just more of a family, I think, than a team with the people I've played over the years. And that's definitely true. And actually going on to the next point about softball in high school, I know when you were playing and the time I was a sports reporter, it was more rampant uh, than it was any other time where people would change schools for whatever sport just to sort of get that advantage. You end up seeing sort of the super teams at some right. schools, and I'll, I'll leave whatever <laughs> schools those are and yeah. whatever sports they are left alone. But everybody knows it didn't matter. You could see it in the newspaper. You could hear it on Twitter. You could see it somewhere else. Other people are talking about it. Did the thought of ever transferring to pursue either greater exposure or competitive advantages, did it ever cross your mind? And and if so, how close were you to deciding to leaving Bennett before changing your mind? Absolutely not. No, there's no way because you would see it. I mean, like you just said, you'd see kids, they play one, two years at one school and then you're transferring off somewhere else. No. So obviously, like you said, we've seen it. Okay, y'all are stacking up teams. But then they came out with a rule, I guess, where you'd have to sit a year or something if you transferred. But back to the question, no, I would have never left my Bennett softball team. Never. Absolutely not. And I mean, and during the time when I was playing, this is how crazy it gets. My family had moved. So we were in Y High District. And this might be breaking the rules or whatever, but We kept our address where I was still able to get a Bennett, still able to play with my team because that was my team. Like, that's who I started with. That's who I'm going to finish with. And, no, the coaches, amazing there. Um, 
the school, my teachers, they're great. And just the whole like community together with that. I mean, and I wanted to start my own, you know, my family, they had gone to Parkside and stuff like that. I want to start my own legacy somewhere else. I don't want to have to be up behind somebody else or like, oh, this is so-and-so's cousin. Like, no. So Bennett was my home. Bennett's where I stayed and I did not have any thought of transferring, moving or anything. So no. Did people try to recruit you? Now, while you may have not decided, did other people say, you should come here, get a shot? You know, it's 1A here or it's 2A here right. or something like that. Um, I don't think so. I mean, nothing that was brought to my attention. I mean, comments may have been said, uh, but nothing that was brought directly to me now. But I'm sure that happens a lot nowadays and prior. So what led to your decision to play softball at the University of Maryland Eastern Shore? Um, I think my biggest decision was, for one, it was close to home. My family lives 10 minutes down the street. I'm a homebody, so I didn't want to leave home. I didn't want to go to school somewhere else other than, you know, the Eastern Shore. Another thing was I wanted to play Division One softball just so I can, like, travel because I love to travel, like I said. I wanted to travel. I wanted to go down south, you know, playing in the MEAC, traveling all the time down south. I mean, that's my favorite part. And I think another thing that really led it was throughout high school, I had done a CTE program at Parkside and I was involved in criminal justice. So they had the criminal justice major there. So I wanted to pursue that. But yeah, that's what really led me there. Before we go back to the softball part, you mentioned criminal justice. What was it that led to an interest in criminal justice? A good program down at UMES, but what has been your aspirations when it came to criminal justice? Um, I think that really brought me into wanting to do that just because I thought it was interesting and I was really involved in like wanting to help people. My interest was to like do child advocacy. So like investigating child crimes and stuff like that. But, you know, life happened. We take different paths. Not saying that I did anything wrong. I can't be in the criminal justice program or anything, but I'm just saying I didn't go in the job field that I expected to go in when I graduated. So I still have my bachelor's in criminal justice, but I am working in a different job field. So I always have something to fall back on if, you know, I do decide to go in that field. So I know you mentioned child advocacy would be more on the law enforcement officer side or more on the uh, lawyer side. I think more on like the law enforcement side. So like I really wanted to be like sort of like a detective or something like that. I wanted to go in that type of field. So I wanted to be the one like investigating, okay, what happened here? Like we're getting all this information, you know, interrogation, stuff like that. So that's really what I wanted to do. But other paths happen. I think there's a plan for everybody. So that just wasn't it. And going back to the softball aspect of playing at UMES, what was it like? Uh, I guess even what was the adjustment from going from the high school level of playing softball to the college level? What was the biggest difference? Um, I think probably all the practicing because honestly, like my day would go, which I didn't live on campus. So every morning I would have to drive there at like five fifteen in the morning to get ready for like your morning campus runs and, you know, your morning workouts, stuff like that. Then you'd go to class at eight o'clock. You do all that. You have another practice at like three or so, and then you go to dinner and then you have another practice like later that night. And it was just all the time. So it's really something where you have to work on your time management. You have to work on, you know, studying extra hard because you're like missing out on a lot of time. And I think it was just a real big difference because you have so much more freedom down there. So you really have to stay on top of things, you know, to be successful in your studies and maintain being on the softball team. 
Yeah, I actually did one of the practices when I was a freshman at UMES. I tried out for the baseball team. Yeah, after getting up and doing the practices at six o'clock in the morning <laughs> with one of my friends, we never made the varsity or JV in high school. Honestly, I'm like, nope, this is not for me. <laughs> I mean, if I'm going to get up early, I might as well wait for an eight o'clock English class that you can't avoid, but right. that ended up being me down the road. My friend ended up playing, never played high school baseball on a varsity or JV level, played baseball at, at division one level as a, as a walk-on. That's crazy. Yeah. Well, that's good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he, he enjoyed that experience. I mean, that's interesting. I mean, and you got a scholarship to play at UMES, right? Um, No, or, I was actually just a walk-on. Walk-on as well. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. Yep. What was that like, especially, again, competing for a spot on a walk-on? I hear some people were told, well, you as a walk-on, you, you have a shot of making the team. But was it a tough competition for a walk-on spot? I don't believe so. I mean, like, my situation <laughs> was different because I kind of was offered, but they didn't want to use the scholarship money on me because my financial aid was paying for everything. So, I mean, I understand where they're coming from. So I technically was a walk on, but I still signed my letter of intent. So I think it was difficult in the aspect. I mean, kind of for everybody to earn your spot because we had a bunch of new freshmen coming in. One of the freshmen, which was a local, she went to Laurel um, high school. Her name's Alexis Hudson. So I played with her. Um, so that we had a lot of talent in our freshman class. So, I mean, everybody had to step up and work for a position. I, yeah, I remember Alexis. Yeah, I covered a lot of Laurel stuff, too. It's interesting. Did you play with Carmen as well, Carmen Frazier? I did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> was she there, what, during your, what, sophomore year? or She was there my it, uh, freshman year. Freshman year. Okay. Yep. Yeah, I, I knew your paths crossed, but I was just trying to remember what time period was. Yep, yep. What was the experience like, especially traveling on the road, playing in the MIAC? You mentioned a competition, traveling down south. What were the experiences like, especially just sort of getting away more from the Eastern Shore? Yeah. Um, the experience, the experiences were great until you stepped on the softball field most of the time. I mean, we got it handed to us. I mean, once you get down south, those are different types of people down there because these people were like, like it was bred into them. Like you're going to be an amazing softball player. But I mean, we had a team to compete. I just don't think it all just meshed together like it should have. But we had really good girls that played for us. But yeah, it, we just didn't have a good record um, when I was there. But the traveling, it was a lot. And we had a lot of fun when we did that. So we would mostly leave on like a Thursday every week. And then we'd come back a Sunday. And then you go to class on Monday, but you wouldn't have practice on Monday. So it was fun. It was different. But like I said, you had to like really stay on top of things or if not, you're going to bail out your class. What was the downtime like on a road trip? And what were some of the interesting places you were able to visit? Um, The downtime was study hall. So when you're not doing it, like when you're back at the hotel or study hall, I guess athletic advisor would come with us on the road. Um, And we still had to have 10 hours of study hall a week. So when we're in the hotel, I mean, we're doing study hall, we're studying, clocking in our hours because that's what you had to have to be eligible to travel every week was 10 hours of study hall. But we would go to like dinner. Um, That's a lot of places. When we went to Savannah for spring break, we did like a couple different exhibition games when we were going for like a week and a half. So we went some pretty cool places there. I know they would normally go to like Tybee Island, like near Savannah um, and just go to the beach down there. But yeah, we went a bunch of different places. So, and like you experience so much more when you're down there playing with these types of people. But yeah, we had a lot of fun when we traveled. Did you do any other extracurricular activities in addition to softball while at UMES? No, I did not. Mm -mm. 
Nope. I was more focused on, you know, I think if, if I would have stayed on campus, I think I would have. But, you know, living off campus, I was more involved in the things, you know, I was doing before I went to UMES. So, like, hanging out with my friends down here, you know, going to class, coming home. I mean, it was kind of like that. So, if I would have went back, I would have involved myself in a lot more. I mean, I made a lot of friends down there, don't get me wrong, but I would have gotten involved in a lot more things than I did. How long did you end up playing at UMES? Well, I played my freshman year and then I quit. Unfortunately, um, if I could go back, I'd redo it all. But I think my personal life got involved in it a little too much. And I just wasn't enjoying the game like I thought I would when I went to college, you know, because it's just such a different atmosphere. Well, not like atmosphere. I'm saying it's like so much put on you. And like we didn't have a good winning record. We our record was actually horrible my freshman year. And I didn't think. I could ever unlike the game like I did when I was playing there. So I just felt like not that it was a waste of time that I was putting in or that I could be doing something totally different. Um, but it was just a time in my life where I was like, okay, you know what? I think I'm just done with this softball thing. Like, I think I'm done. So it was just the, I lost the love of the game when I went and played in college. So that was my only really decision on why I stopped playing. What is the biggest takeaway from your experience at UMES? I think my biggest takeaway was just meeting new people, which it sounds weird. And it sounds like that might not have been like much, but like I'm the type of person where people will open like my mindset up to like different things. So like if I learn something about you, or if I learn something about like where you're from or like your culture or just really anything, it really just sticks with me. So um, that's something that I take throughout life where, okay, so I learned this about this. Maybe if someone else doesn't understand the way that I'm looking at it or the way that someone else who I know has experienced these types of things um, is trying to explain something or says like how this is affecting them, maybe I can be the one to, okay, well, this is what I've seen here. Um, let me try to break it down for you a little bit. And, you know, just pass off that knowledge that I've learned, which that's probably my biggest takeaway from going to UMES. So that would be it. Yeah. And I think one of the biggest things, and from my experience, I still have friends I keep in contact with. People I didn't even know, like going to Snow Hill for a long time, I had friends who who I met in college who went to school like in Del Mar, who went to school in Salisbury. And there was a good chance that I probably went to school with some of the people in Salisbury. I have friends I kept in touch with. I can say I've known people for almost, it really has been about 20 years since I, went right. to, since I first started going to UMES and I try to keep in contact and touch with them. And I think that's one of the biggest things, the friends that you make from uh, your time in college, there's different levels of friends. There's the people you've been friends with since elementary school. Then there's the people you were <laughs> friends with in high school. Then there's the people you went to college with that uh, right. I guess see you as you mature more. And then you know, there's work friends and there's different levels of work friends there too. Right. Yeah. I mean, like, yeah, like you said, I've got tons of friends from like all over the United States. I mean, I had a friend in college who was from Alaska. I mean, Colorado, California, Ohio, and then all the way up the East Coast. I mean, like you just meet so many different people. So I just think that's a real good thing about, you know, going to college specifically. And then, you know, being involved in like sports or extracurricular activities. Um, so I think it really just gets you out there like that. 
We continue our look at former prep and college softball players with an interview with Destiny Morgan Davis. In this interview, Davis discusses how self-imposed pressures of being a perfect student and aiming to pitch at the college level led to a major reevaluation of her mental well-being and ultimately led to major changes, including the pursuit of painting and a move to Florida. So I was a really big perfectionist in high school. I wanted to have straight A's all the time. I remember I was in middle school and I got, I think, a C in home ec. And my world was spinning. I was like, oh my gosh, like I can't cook and I'm going to fail and life is terrible. But I was a straight A student in high school and I got to give the scholarly address, which was really awesome because it was kind of like a competition. Certain people would be elected to write an essay and there were like four different topics. And then you submitted them, I believe, to the guidance counselor and he chose who would give the scholarly address. And I remember I chose finding things in the world to inspire you, something like that. And I remember being so nervous and writing it and just thinking, I'm like, there's so many smart kids in the school. Like, I know I'm not going to be picked. And you also got $1,000 for a scholarship. So when I was picked, I was like, oh, my God, like, this is crazy. This is my senior year. And I get to speak at graduation because I never was really into SGA or anything. Like, I loved what they did and I would vote and do everything for that. But I was never really somebody who would be able to speak at graduation because I was on the SGA team. But it was something that, like, I secretly wanted to do. And then when I won, I was like, oh, my gosh, this is awesome. The only thing that was a little difficult about that speech was in the Wicomico Civic Center. When you're speaking, there's just this really big echo. You have to try to not repeat yourself after you just heard yourself say something two seconds later. (laughs) But that was probably my biggest accomplishment for school that is still pretty near to my heart. As an athlete playing, you said, recreation, travel and varsity sports, plus trying to be an A student. Did you ever worry about burnout down the road? Because I've known a lot of people who some of them were valedictorians. You'd think they would go on to do great things. And there's nothing against some of the people who end up making those decisions later in life. But did you worry about that? Maybe burning you out down the road? Because I'll honestly admit, I was a bit of an underachiever in high school, sort of bored, but eventually like college, then that's when the lights turned on. And that's when I was sort of more focused, but. Well, yeah. And I mean, honestly, that's expected because when you go to college, you're learning things that you want to learn, you know, like things that are actually like that you're going to use like in every day of your life. I don't really remember the last time I used Y equals MX plus B. I don't, I hate that I remember it, but (laughs) well, yeah, that's actually something that I never really thought about mental burnout. I never thought that there was going to be a point where I was like, I can't do this like mentally, like physically I'm okay, but mentally I just can't do this. That's not something that ever crossed my mind. Now with, sports I mean I was going to the gym and doing workouts and everything and my arm like from pitching like I was always worried about like I would get the what's it called it's tendonitis in your elbow but they they call it something um and it would it would be so painful sometimes and I I was never a person to be like I'm hurt I don't want to play like I remember one time when I was little I got a ball thrown in my face my lip was busted and everything and I put a mask on and I went right out and started pitching So it's never been like something where I wanted to complain about. But then when I got into college, I also developed chronic lower back pain from pitching. I was being overpitched there. And then I also developed a heart condition. And that is kind of when the breaking point happened for me where 
I was physically burnt out. I was mentally burnt out. And it's something that you don't really think about as a kid, because when I was in high school, I was like, oh my gosh, like what happens after is you go to college and you get a job and then your life is over. And now I'm 25 and I'm like, well, I was such a little kid. Like I didn't need to think that the world was going to end. I didn't need to go that hard on myself. I didn't need to be a perfectionist and do all these things. I mean, it's great that I got straight A's in high school and everything, but I would have still been able to gotten into Wesley, probably with a similar scholarship that I was given. And it kind of seems like it almost wasn't worth it. If, you know, if I ever like were to tell somebody that's at, like in high school now, like there are some kids at my job that they're like, I want to work all the time and make all the money. And I'm like, okay, you have the rest of your life to work. Trust me, please enjoy being a high school kid. So I do tell some of my employees that, but yeah, it's something that never really crossed my mind when I was younger. And then it kind of all hit me when I was in college. So it's definitely something that people should be taught about in school, especially if they're in sport and academics, because there's so many pressures coming from everybody sometimes, like pressures from your teachers, pressures from your parents, pressures from your peers, you know, because kids are judgy in high school, man, like, they can be hurtful, and they can say things that they don't mean, but can really be harmful. So yeah, I, anytime some kids like I need to grind and I need to do this, this I'm like, just Remember to take care of yourself and self-care first, too. I learned a big part that I was setting unrealistic expectations on myself. And I was a very, there's this really good book. It's called The Gifts of Imperfection. And I was a really big perfectionist. And that also led to my burnout as well, because you're just pushing yourself so much into your breaking point, because you will do anything to be perfect, have the perfect grades, have the perfect pitch, um, have the perfect batting average and all that. And that's kind of how I think I did so well, because there's a line between like setting like realistic expectations and expecting things out of yourself. And then once you cross that line of it's just unhealthy, it's you. I mean, it's true. Perfectionism doesn't exist. And that really took a toll. And that's when putting my mental health became so important. And there's a lot of things that I do, like just simple things like going to the gym that has like getting out. It's it's nice because here it's pretty much always sunny. <laughs> so like just going out, getting your vitamin D and everything. But I feel like I had to go through the burnout to understand what my body needs and what it deserves. Because I know one thing for me is if I think about it, like my body deserves this, like it deserves the eight cups of water a, a day, it deserves eight hours of sleep, then it doesn't feel like a chore. Like it doesn't feel like the things that I have to do for me are a chore. It feels like, oh, I'm doing this for me because it needs me. And, and it's already doing so many things. Like my body's already doing so many things for me. So I definitely had to go through that burnout to realize all of these things collectively. And now I just like to like, if someone comes to me, I'm just like, put yourself first. That's a lot of the times that's what I say. Like you need to think about yourself first. And a lot of the times that solves the issue. Cause I know a lot of people that don't know boundaries and they don't, they just kind of take what they're given, but you don't have to do that. Like you control your life. So definitely had to go through that to realize all those things. First I was at an at home job. It was my first at home job. I thought it was great. Like got to work from bed from sometimes and um, got to do other things, do a little cleaning here and there in the house. But it got to be way too much for me. 
And we ended up, me and my partner decided we both met and we both wanted to go to Florida and um, he was ready to move. I wasn't happy with my position at my job anymore. And we were just like, let's go. So we headed down to Florida. I got a job at a restaurant here called Left Coast Seafood Company as the front of house manager. And it's been a complete 180 from my previous job. My previous job, they were actually based out of New Mexico, but it was very much work, 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 work. And not a lot of breaks. It was just a lot of overtime, things that I wasn't happy with. And this job, I have a set schedule and everything. And I'm back in the restaurant industry where I started when I was 15. And it kind of feels like I'm back at home. So that's nice. Culture wise, we moved to an area that is in the 90% of a white population where me coming from Salisbury, it was definitely a little weird. This area is more more conservative which I'm a little not used to but that's something that you go around and it's kind of like almost like an unspoken thing here where it's like you don't talk politics you don't talk religion everyone's just down in Florida here to have a good time and it's kind of like you just don't bring those things up which is something that's different for me because I've always really liked to use my voice for many different platforms. So that's something kind of like almost monitoring the things that I say and just being aware of who I am around. So that's probably the biggest change that has been for me since I've moved to this area of Florida. One thing that we've seen you do presently or most recently is getting into painting and art. How did you find that path and what led to that? So when I was little, I, my grandma would, she was the biggest artist. She would crochet and knit and sew. She would paint. She would make, I remember we would sit down and we would make bookmarkers of Disney characters and then she'd like laminate them for me. So I'd have like, like, you know, 400 bookmarkers. Like, I don't know who needs that many, but, (laughs) and then quarantine hit. And my house was in the middle of a renovation and I was actually living with my cousin at the time. And we were sitting there and we're like, what the heck do we do? We can't watch Gossip Girl anymore. Like, I can't watch Vampire Diaries anymore. Like, I can't watch anything. We need to figure out what we want to do. So we came up with all these goals and we started to crochet. And then, like, I started to become, like, super serious about painting. When I had moved back from Philly, I had started dabbing in it just because I was like, you know, I started drawing. It started out drawing. And then I found some old paint and I was like, Hmm. I went to the Dollar Tree, you know, got a few more things to paint, got some of those little canvases. And then I started just seeing if I could paint with like taking a painting. I don't know if you've ever been on Pinterest, but you know, you go on something and then they show you if they show you a painting and then everybody comments the painting they where they tried to paint it to. So I was kind of doing that for a little bit. But then I was like, I really, really enjoy this. So I started making gifts for everybody and they really liked them. I started giving Christmas presents as these and then quarantine hit. And I was like, I want to make a collection. And my friend, um, Morgan, her mom has a friend and in Chincoteague, they have their own little art gallery. And I asked her, I was like, Hey, like, can I get in on this? Like, I don't know what I'm doing, but like, I want to do it. And she was like, yeah, of course. And I was like, and then in two weeks or was it three weeks or something like that? I had to have at least 10 paintings done. And I was like, oh my gosh, I don't know what I just signed up 
before? How did I do this? And I, I kid you not, every second that I was not working from home, I was in my room painting, drawing, just trying to get everything done for that show. And then after that show, people started asking me for paintings. And I was like, I mean, if you guys think I'm that good, like I can attempt to paint something for you. Yeah, sure. And then it was just a snowball effect and it was so many other people. And I was like, oh my gosh. And I just like fell right into it. I was like, I, I didn't know that after. And it was so crazy because the things that I painted like to begin with, it was really hard for me to consider it art. I was like, this isn't, like it just doesn't look like what you think art is like in the galleries but then like i've learned like art is art like art is anything that you make it to be anything you want it to be and the freedom in that especially recently for me has just been amazing i slowly went from i remember painting my first collection being like i'm never drawing a hand and i'm never doing a face and then all of a sudden I did this whole like line of portraits and now I'm doing like all of these hands and I'm like, this is crazy. And it's so nice. Like kind of, I really like this question because it made me just realize like really look back and like see the progress I've made as an artist and like how it's become more, I mean, it's, it's my passion, but it's become like something that I can make money off of and profit off of, which is great. But there's also like, now there's a part of me that, I was doing so many commissions for so long that now I'm at the stage where it's like, I want to do art for me right now. Like, I just want to focus on me. And if, if somebody likes what I make, that's awesome. I'll get a print for you. That's awesome. Cause I also dabbled into digital art. I made the investment and got a very expensive tablet, but honestly, I tell everybody, I'm like, if you're an artist, if, if your mom's an artist, if anyone's an artist and they don't have a tablet, get them a tablet because I can paint in bed. I can paint while I'm watching TV. Like I don't have to go to my studio and sit down for four hours and like paint. And there are times where I'm, I definitely want to do that. I prefer that over it. But just being able to watch the new episode of Loki and paint away is my dream. It's so convenient. I love it. So it's been very good for me. I would say very good for me. My art has been. I was going to ask how long does it normally take you to do one? So digitally, it's obviously quicker because there's a backspace button for when I mess up, which is really nice. <laughs> I remember one time I went to go paint right after I digitally painted and I messed up and I cracked and I went to go hit the back button. I was like, wait, there's no back button on this painting right now because it's an actual painting. <laughs> but yeah, I would say for a painting where I'm actually with acrylic painting, I would say probably like the one that you posted of King Von that I did for this group, that probably took seven to eight hours. But that oh, was wow. also because that was my first painting that I done that much detail on. Um, paintings that I did for my collection, probably between four and six. But I promise I sit down and I paint and I look up and two hours have gone by. And I'm like, oh my gosh, how did that happen? Like, what went on and then and before you know it your back hurts because you're sitting there too long and you're like oh it's like seven o'clock and I started at I don't know one <laughs> so but for digitally it definitely takes a lot less time probably cuts the time in half to be honest which is easy because it helps me get more art out faster so I can keep people engaged and looking at what I'm creating and stuff so 
I know you mentioned the hands, and it's a funny thing. That's how they say a lot of cartoonists. That's why you see the four-finger hands, because they're so tough to draw. And yeah, and now you said doing the hands. Yeah, it's, it's understandable, because sometimes you can get the hand and the weird thing that's put the pinky, or other times you have to try to do the contrast between these three fingers right here. They are very difficult right. ones, and I know plenty of people who do art, and a couple people do comic book art, and I'm like, I don't know how you do it. I really don't know how you do it because that is a task. It is. And it's so funny because my cousin, she was helping a lot with my collection. Um, just because, you know, in the beginning, you're not as confident. So it's like you need someone there being like, girl, that looks so good. I can't wait to hang that up. I remember one time she like looked at one of my hands and it was like on the girl's head. And she was like, well, it kind of looks like a tentacle destiny. And I'm like, a tentacle? Really? You had to use the word tentacle. Like, now I can't unsee this. Now I have to learn how to draw hands because I'm just using Squidward's tentacles now. Like, ah. Uh, just so. call it manga and you're good to go. Right. <laughs> the tentacles, you can call it manga. So as we've been talking about your art. And another thing I want to say, of course, when you're talking about art, how you're not sure how it's supposed to look. And I always see art is like humor. It's subjective. It's in the eye of the beholder. Somebody might think one comedian is funny and then some think that same comedian is not funny at all but you, you can go a drastic different route where we can go off on a whole tangent about comedians and like oh i think this guy's funny i don't think this guy's funny or right. just like artists had their periods this comedian was funny back then but not funny now or they weren't funny back then yeah. and they just got better as it went along right and it's hard because when you do realism like back to like the perfectionist in me because that's really what I was doing for a while like I, I was like I just want to do realism that's what I feel comfortable with that way I know when my painting comes out what it's actually supposed to look like but then I was like putting all these pressures on me to be perfect and make sure I do it exactly how it's supposed to be done that I was like oh this is terrible now it's like now I feel like I'm in school again where I'm like putting all these pressures on me and then I was like you know what I'm gonna join an artist group on Facebook see what happens maybe people are feeling the same way I'm feeling and I joined all these groups on Facebook and like all these other artists are like, I go through the same thing, like been there, done that. There are some things that I don't even say out loud because I'm like, that might be dumb. But then someone posts it on my art Facebook group. And I'm like, I was thinking that too. So like, it's so nice that like I've joined those groups because they've definitely helped me realize that no matter what, at the end of the day, like whatever you make and you're satisfied with, like that's art. It doesn't matter if nobody likes it. It's your art and it makes it special because nobody else is going to make this exact same thing. Which is also something that I love about art because, I mean, obviously plagiarism, you, you can't do it. But like, it's so nice because sometimes I start with a blank canvas and then I end. I'm like, I didn't even know that's what it was going to end up like. I This was not planned, but I'm really happy that it looks like this. Yeah, and it sounds a little different from how the sculptor said, I see the brick and I'm just freeing my sculpture from the brick because some people have that thought, what's in their head, what they're going to get, what they're going to get out of it. But, you know, blank canvas, it, it is right. all for you to decide. Exactly, exactly. Moving on to our next interview of 2021, good friends Scott Johnson and Victoria Robinson come from vastly different locales as Johnson is Chicago-born and New York City-bred, while Robinson is a Washington, D.C. area native through and through. The two talk about their respective cities, how they met in college at the University of Maryland Eastern Shore, and the festivities of Johnson's 2019 wedding, which Robinson was an attendee of. How did you guys meet at UMS? Oh, Jesus. 
Uh, you want to tell the stories now? <laughs> <laughs> him go first and then i will correct him <laughs> oh god okay so i think we may not remember exactly i think our interpretation no i remember it do i like telling this story no but <laughs> um so it was like the first week of classes and i overslept out of nervousness and fear and everything and then I didn't know where I was going, so I'm in a mad scramble to get to freshman orientation. No, it was and, English class. Oh, it was English class. I'm, okay, that's why she's correcting me. So I bust through the door with this awkward look on my face. I was just like, hey. <laughs> what's up? Oh, my God. I was just lucky no bowel movements came out of me after that moment. Were, were you embarrassed, Scott? <laughs> yes, I was. I mean, you have this mindset when you go to your first year because you want to stab yourself. You want to be the cool guy. You want to be the confident guy. That went out the window in about five seconds. <laughs> you know what? It was bad. It was really, really bad. Like, from my perspective, um, I'm just gonna... I just thought to myself, like, I mean, he's right. I mean, the, at that time, I, I believe the classes were only like 50 minutes. We're already like 10 minutes into the class. And here you have, you have this guy just busting this into the door and everybody looks at him and he's like sweating and he's like, hey, <laughs> everybody just looked at him like, what in the world? And I just remember thinking in my head, like, yo, this guy just really, really embarrassed himself. How did he not know where the class was? Like, literally, we came down there at least a week before school started. So that was the purpose of you, you know, going to orientation and finding out your classes. And I'm like, how did he get lost? Like, there's literally nothing to do on campus. So that, that was my thought. And then he came and he sat down right next to me. <laughs> I'm just like, so, what's up? It was definitely an awkward moment and the compassion inside of me. I felt for him because it was just one of those moments that you just, if the floor could open up, you would want to fall through it. I'm still looking for that floor. But many years later, we can look back. That was what fall of, you know, 2002. We can look back and we can laugh at that moment. Definitely, for sure. No, you definitely can't. I, I just, every time I hear that. <laughs> I'm just like, ah. It's like, look, we're going to forget that day, you know, you know, it did not exist. That's why, Vic, I think you're going to bring up that day to my kids. You like this. You know how awkward your father is? Look, there's many um, stories I can tell them, I, but I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. Gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna Move on. Move on. Move on. Attending sporting events prior to the craziness that occurred, let's just say basically, last March. Before that, how often did you guys go to sporting events and what were your favorite ones to go to at the time? So, I don't go to sporting events because A, they're too expensive. I mostly go to like the Mets games and maybe the Brooklyn Cyclone games. I don't really go to Yankee games because they're too expensive and I hate them. You hate them. I, why did I think that you used to like the Yankees? I don't know. No, I know. used to no, no, no. I used to work at Yankee Stadium, okay. so I know how they roll. Like, I'm just like, dude, no. And I shouldn't be saying this because my wife is a Yankee fan, but dude, uh, it's about I to be can't. trouble. 
he knew what I was when he put the ring on, so I don't care. Anyway, no, but before the pandemic, I really didn't go to like much sporting events because I was working too much and it was like way too pricey. So I'd go to like one football game. I'd be sitting like it'd be a group thing. I don't be like spending like three hundred dollars to sit in the middle of the field. I just mostly stuck watching the games on TV and just going to the occasional Met game when they had like a special. So how about you, Vicky? Well, I used to have this thing where I used to tell myself that, I mean, because everything is so close to me. You hop on the Metro, you can go to the Capital One Center. I think that's what it's called now. Or Capital One Arena. I can go to the Washington football. I mean, literally, I can drive in my car and be there in 10 minutes. I had the thing where I told myself that each quarter or each season that I will try to attend one game per season. So whenever it's football season, I will go to um, the football games, whether it's a preseason or a regular season. I've not gotten to hockey yet. You know, that's one thing that I've been trying to do, go to see the Caps play. You know, I'm just... I don't like cold. So I just figure that it's in a cold season and is also inside with ice. And But I, I still, I'm going to put that on my bucket list. And I really love going to the Nationals game, but COVID has really taken that out uh, for me. And basketball is one that I probably should get into. I mean, literally sometimes before COVID, I mean, they're literally giving tickets away. Hopefully whenever we get this pandemic under control, that maybe we'll get back to, some normal life. I mean, I really miss going to the baseball games because I feel like being there makes it better. You know, yeah. it's, it's, it's something that I can't watch baseball on TV and get the same feeling that I get when I'm in the stadium. I just feel a little bit more engaged in into the game when I'm actually there. I think the last, it's probably been maybe 2018 is when I went to the Nationals game because they were playing the Dodgers, because Yasiel Puig, you know, was still playing. I like him, so <laughs> I went to see him play uh, against the Nationals. So I think that was the last time. And it's like, no matter what, anytime I go, it must be a curse or something. Anytime I go to see the Nationals, it always rains. Every single time I go, it always rains. There's never been a time that I've gone to see the Nationals and it hasn't rained. Every single time. But I feel like the the, the food inside is a part of the experience like this is like me going to the movie theaters and not having the movie popcorn even though i i can't lie i have snuck some <laughs> some snacks in <laughs> if you haven't then you are either on the honor society or a liar that's that's all it is but you I'm have to sneak in reasonable things like i swear <laughs> i'm not hold up so. <laughs> I, I tell you this hold up no 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 i tell you this i swear one time me and my wife brought like half the White Castle menu into the movie. Day. We're just like, <laughs> was it in go. a big purse? Was it in a big purse? That's the only way you can disguise it. She had a big purse, and I put some in my coat. So yes. See, I had friends. We all went to see Tropic Thunder. So this is how long ago it was. People, my friends, despite their names, Greg and Candace, they had bags of popcorn in sandwich bags and just kept handing it out to everybody. And uh, some of us, uh, I snuck in something from Dairy Queen, a burger from Dairy Queen and all this other stuff. Pockets, pockets full. Other people had the dollar store stuff. I mean, see, and like I said, to me, you're, movie you're theater. You're that person that's in the theater 
that's making all that noise rattling. Like you hear the rapper, so we're just like. <laughs> well, here's the thing that it sounds like any other box of candy that you would buy at the movie theater, but that's the one thing to me. I say this: the movie theater is like the buffet, but in reverse, where you bring in the bag to pull out the food, as opposed to bring in the bag to load up on food when you go out. Because you guys probably remember the Bonanza Steakhouses or the Ponderosa Steakhouses. My sisters would take a big purse; they would line it with uh, they'd line it with a plastic bag. Uh, or napkins, and then they just take all the wings <laughs> off the boat oh and stuff it in there. Wouldn't be anything else. And you know, this is the era well before the air fryer, so you don't get the reheated consistency and crispiness. But yeah, that was pretty much, you know, that, that to me, hey, you know, we're going to the buffet. Yeah, I'll get some of the stuff, the ice cream, and all that. Those wings to go. <laughs> like this. I, don't, I don't think I've ever taken any food out for the buffet ever i probably should have but i don't think i've ever done that line your purse with a bag that doesn't spill grease and just line and just just load up your crunchy stuff no saucy stuff just crunchy stuff that you know easy to reheat i think i would only do like if you know if it was like a pizza buffet you know <laughs> i like pizza but like, no, to me, like i think that i've always been the type that i've never really liked buffet because i'll i'll be that person that people will be mad at i'll go to the buffet and I'll just get one plate just because, you know, that's all I want to eat. Like, I think sometimes, you, you know, you think that if you go to a buffet, you'll end up eating more and more and more and more and more. But you really don't. Yeah. I mean, now I've seen people who get the same plate of the same food over and over and over. That's, yeah. you know, that's one thing. But, you know, like I said, I'm going to sample it. I mean, of course, I went to a Chinese buffet. That's what I was just about mentioning. <sighs> See, I went to a Chinese buffet now. With COVID, now you basically right. tell them what you want and they'll scoop it on your plate, which is such a, uh, I can't do this. I, it's like getting your gas pumped in New Jersey. I'm a grown adult. I know what I can do. Oh, yeah. Uh, New Jersey is another place I don't like going to, but I'm a grown adult and I like to be treated like a grown adult. This isn't like I decided to get one of those Colonel's famous bowls from KSC. You ever hear the comedian? He talked about, man, I just got myself a failure pie in a sadness bowl that, you know, you treat me like a grown adult that I can't eat corn, mashed potatoes, and chicken by themselves. <laughs> you have to feed it to me like I am a, uh, feed it to me like I am a baby. You know, I'm capable enough to doing all this stuff. And I think I like to have that courtesy of it. And just like I said, I don't like one, like if you ever been in New Jersey, which God, I assume you definitely have a lot. I, uh, yep. You know, I don't like people pumping my gas. I really don't. I I, oh, that's I don't trust anybody with my card. Weird. I mean, to me, I, don't. I think it's weird because I remember the first time I, you know, actually driven my car to New Jersey, pull up in the gas tank, and I'm getting out the car. The guy's looking at me like, what are you doing? I'm like, uh, what are you doing? Like, <laughs> like bro. <laughs> you know, this, I mean, I've been to New Jersey many of times, maybe passing through, stopping, but very rarely have I ever stopped at a gas station. So the first time that I actually had to stop at a gas station, you know, I was not aware. I wasn't aware that, you know, I got out of my car and he's looking at me like, okay, I'm like, what are you doing? And he's like, we got to pump your gas. I felt so weird. <laughs> it's just I, like, I, why? Because to me, I feel like it's like, like Earl said, it's something that I'm capable of doing. Like, I feel like it's, it's like, I don't know. I, I just didn't feel right. It's, it's pumping gas. <laughs> <laughs> it's pumping. 
Oh, man. I mean, to me, I just feel like I don't think I could be the person pumping everybody's gas because I just feel like if you're not from that state where they do that and you're used to doing it on your own, it's to me, I feel like it's a, it's a, it's a task that, you know, and maybe I'm just thinking too deep about it. Let me say something, because basically we just basically ran up the whole East Coast. Like, we just trashed Jersey. We trashed Philly. We trashed D.C. Baltimore. I trashed New York. I don't care. Exactly. <laughs> but, trashing these places you know i'm not trashing i mean i'm sure that there are some you know wonderful things in all these places <laughs> not in new jersey wow i work there so i work there so uh, basically remotely yo that walmart is yo don't, don't sleep on that walmart i go for the walmart like and my family's out I'm, there but anyway i'm trying to think you basically have to make a right turn to make a left turn that's basically i can't do it i know oh, somebody who lives in dc now who's from new jersey i know from somebody who lives in dc now who's originally from jersey and like goes to new york stuff a lot and is from jersey and it's like yeah hey and he's a he's a traffic engineer so he's like hey don't hate on the right turn to make a left turn it is safer but to oh me i God. just can't do it my wife, every time I pull up, we're driving to Jersey. She's like, you know, you can turn right here. I was like, what? And it's so weird. It's just like, you're so used to having laws. And it's like, yeah, you can turn right here. It's fine. Do you see a sign that says you can't turn right? I was like, I don't trust Jersey that way. Like, I don't speaking trust traffic, them. Speaking of traffic, like, I think what I kind of get confused about being in this area my whole life, like the circles in D.C., <laughs> We have been in D.C. I'm like, literally, I will go in a circle and I will always miss. I mean, I always see the sign and be like, you know, the third circle. You mean like just like. Kings of the Avenue or something. I'm just, I always miss it. What? You're like Chevy Chase in European Vacation where he's missing the turn and he starts <laughs> like slowly late. going We're insane as he goes around. <laughs> I'm like, We're almost there. They have a few in Baltimore, but I'm just sitting there. What was their obsession with these circles? Oh my god! I don't even want to talk about Baltimore. They cause... say it's supposed to be safer because you know people should know when they're right away. But they yield to the right of traffic. But I don't exactly. know. That's always. I mean, it's probably safer. But again, people who don't know how to drive, it's always an issue, you know, regardless if you're the most skilled driver in the world. We get a lot of tourists that come in the area. So I mean, if I've been here, you know, my whole life, then I'm probably used to it. But imagine someone who's not familiar with the area, and I mean, everything looks like. You know, and you're trying to like, especially Dupont Circle. I'm going in a circle. I've been around a circle many a times in my life. I'm just like, darn it, I missed the turn. I got to go. You're just like, damn. Uh, oh my god. Especially when the GPS tells me. You know, sometimes I need to use GPS, and it always goes tells me to go the wrong way. So it's oh. just, it's just crazy. Living in two different areas, comparing and contrasting New York and DC. To you, if you can, state your case for why your region slash area is the... Uh, Scott, let's start with you about New York. Uh, the culture is, you know, it's fast-paced. If you're slow, we'll probably just move you over and get to where we got to go. Like, that's kind of how it is. Like, we're more like, move, get out the way. Like, I'm trying to get somewhere. It's like, everyone's trying to get somewhere. It's just like, you can't just sit there and watch. Like, ooh, look at that. Excuse me, I gotta get to work. <laughs> it's like they're proud of being rude. You know? No, we're not rude. We're in a hurry. We're trying to get somewhere. <laughs> okay, now for the case on why DC is a better city than New York. 
DC is the city of power. <laughs> it's the nation's capital. I would say that DC is full of just rich culture. There's so much things that we look back and I feel like I take pride in. I've lived in this area my whole entire life and I feel like there's no place like it. The mumbo songs, <laughs> the go-go music, like that's a national treasure. I mean, I know somebody may fight me for saying this, but I'm not really a fan of Ben's Chili Bowl. I don't know why people come from around the world to go there. But I'm not really a fan of it, but people love it. I mean, I just feel like the D.C. metropolitan area has so much to offer. They have the museums, the monuments. Even in Maryland, you know, we love our crabs. I am a diehard seafood fan, so I'm always eating, you know, Maryland blue crabs all year round. So I feel that D.C. is, I don't want to say better than New York, but I'm biased. I have to say one thing. What is it about uh, Ben's Chili Bowl you don't like? Is it the sausages themselves? Is it the chili or? I think it's the sausage itself, you know, the, the half smoke. And also, I think it's because of the hype, you know, it's like, don't get me wrong. It's a staple in D.C. You know, people come to around the country to go to Ben's Chili Bowl. But it's just like, you know, how people hype certain things up so much and you thought, oh, my God, I got to have it. And then when you have it, you're just like, you know, the experience is OK. You know, it's not. It doesn't meet the level of the hype. Is there a better half smoke in the uh, D.C. metropolitan area? I don't, I don't know, because I'm not really a half smoke kind of person. But that's just a staple. That's the place that people know. Scott, to you, what's the iconic food landmark in New York City? What is a particular place where everybody says you have to go or the touristy spot for foodies in New York? Mm. Wow, it's just like there's so many options. It's just like a melting pot. Everyone comes for the pizza. It's like, you think of New York, you think of pizza. Like, and there's always that debate, who serves the better pizza? I don't know. I'm sorry. Like, I think D.C. has better jumbo slices than New York. I'm sorry. I'm just saying, like. like that may be blasphemous, and I know I'm probably never going to be able to walk the streets of New York again, but. Yeah, they're going to see this. They'll be like, hey, is that the gold <laughs> talk smack about our city? Right? I won't be able to walk the streets of New York, but I think I've had better jumbo slices in Adams Morgan than I have in New York. So, <laughs> yeah, it's like I think how everybody talks about cheesesteaks in Philly. And I had put up a thing on Facebook. We were in Philly one day and like I asked people, where is the best place in Philly to get a cheesesteak? And I had like 15 different answers. And, you know, I hear the touristy places like Geno's and Pat's and all this other stuff. And everybody's talking about all the touristy stuff. And then we went to this one place called Joe's down in Fishtown. And that was probably the best cheesesteak that I had in a while. And for some reason, I used to love cheesesteaks, but I feel like I've outgrown it. I don't know, just something different about the taste. But we went there. Best fries, best cheesesteak, pretty cool toppings bar, which was pretty cool about that. But to me, everybody's going to have their favorite place, their claim to fame, the one place that they love the most. And when you it's can... subjective. It, yeah. Like, I went to uh, Gino's, and that's the place that you always see Pat's and Gino's. You always see it in, you know, in movies and things like that. But to be honest, I didn't like Gino's. I, I really didn't. And they were kind of rude up there. But the best cheesesteak I've ever had was from Delisandro's. Delisandro's is the best that I've had in Philly. Definitely. Like anybody, or I'm sure 
people in Philly have been there before. I mean, it's a wait. It's one of those places there's nowhere to park. <laughs> like, call your order in and, like, have your car in hazard and run in and grab it. But it's definitely was worth the drive to go to Del Sandro's. Yeah, and that was one of the ones mentioned, too. And I'm like, there's too many to, to choose from. And honestly, if I can avoid going to Philadelphia as much as I can, and I'm, like, 40 minutes away, I'll do it. <laughs> and that's pretty much my thing, avoiding Philadelphia altogether. But you know, I always my what's the reason? I just don't like Philadelphia. I honestly New York City is sort of like eh. like I said, DC, Baltimore, yes. I always used to talk about how bad the weather was and how really the only time I saw the sun was shining on New York was a, a infamous day in history in two thousand one. But we'll just leave it at that. So I I just say that honestly New York is eh, eh. You know, it has its uses. It has its purposes. I've been there a couple of times, but only if I really need to go to New York. That's the only way I'll go. Like Philly, I have no need to go to Philly. Maybe for cheaper concerts, they're equivalent to like Wolf Trap, which is much closer than driving all the way to Virginia. But that's a whole different story. I want to talk about Scott's wedding. You guys had to go down to Mexico and you were able to be a guest at Scott's wedding. What was that experience like? Let him talk about his wedding. No, no, I want to hear the guest's point of view. Like, nobody cares about the groom's point of view. We want to hear what the guest experience was, because they treat the grooms like they're superstars. I want to see if they treat you, you know, kind of the same way. Like I had a really, really, really good time. That was my first time in Mexico, or well, first time traveling to Mexico by myself. You know, I was bold. <laughs> I was <laughs> She's like, yeah, I'm going. Yeah, because, I mean, I was concerned about going by myself. And I mean, everything was beautiful, like the way they had everything set up. You know, you had a van pick you up at the airport and, you know, take you to the resort. I mean, the resort was so beautiful. Like as soon as I got my bags and I was going to check in, it was like just the view of the beach from where the lobby was. I mean, it was just amazing. I was taken aback. Um, the room was beautiful, you know, just the whole resort, the food and, and just the events. And on the wedding day, it's kind of funny, I have this story that the whole time I was just chilling. But the morning of the wedding, I decided to go to the pool, right? I wanted to lay out and have, you know, swim in the pool, get some sun. And like maybe a couple of hours before the wedding, because I think the, we had to be at there at 4.30. And you know, I'm an early bird, so I was going to be at 4.30. Yeah, we always run late, so I don't know. I was having some margaritas at the pool, because it was just drinking the, bringing the margaritas. And probably like around one or two o'clock, I started to feel a little shaky. I'm like, oh no, <laughs> not, I've been here a couple days and I, you know, why did I do this? So anyway, I gathered myself, <laughs> took myself back to the room and tried to, tried to shake it off and got dressed and um, watched Scott get married. It was so beautiful. Uh, just watching Jackie come down the aisle and hearing the music. I was like, oh, try not to cry. And then Scott comes down the aisle <laughs> to some, <laughs> some, some um, rustling music. Yeah, I did. I did. Damn I did. I was like, this guy is crazy. He walked down the aisle to some rustling music. <laughs> Everything was beautiful, you know, the music, the ceremony, um, you know, the bride, the groom, the, you know, the bridesmaids, I love their colors, the color scheme. Um, it was just a, a wonderful experience. I'm glad I was there, you know, present to see him, you know, take this big step in his life. And it was good. Oh, and another story. Oh, geez, here we go. 
Look, you know what you know what story I'm about to tell. No, remember what happened to me at the bouquet? Oh, oh God! Woo! <laughs> <laughs> Let me tell uh. you, right? <laughs> so got there to the reception. <laughs> Scott comes in there, walks in with Jackie, his new beautiful bride. Russell music. He has wrestling music, and he has a belt, a wrestling belt. <laughs> yes, I do. I'm like, this dude is really, he, he's really feeling himself. He is really doing the most. Anyway, so we're sitting down, we have the food, and but it comes time to throwing the bouquet. So me, you know, I get up there, you know, I believe I'm in the front. Long story short, when Jackie throws the bouquet, the bouquet is in the air. And I'm like, literally, it's on the tip of my finger. Somebody pushed me from behind, <laughs> knocked me on the ground, knocked me on the ground for this bouquet. Somebody caught it. I'm just going to say, I'm going to let Scott tell that part. I, ain't gonna... <laughs> I couldn't believe it. I mean, I'm glad I was not wearing a dress because I kind of wore, like, not a bodysuit, but a jumpsuit. Jumpsuit. Man, if I had a dress on, they would have seen everything. I mean, literally, when I say, <laughs> and Scott didn't know, because I got up, you know, I, I picked myself up, like nothing happened. I'm clapping, like, oh, you know. I mean, I literally had it on the tips of my fingers. I was impressed. Like, I'm I'm not going to, like, throw bowls to catch a bouquet. I mean, it's not that deep, you know. But apparently... Some others had um, more motivation to mm. catch the bouquet. So mm. I, Scott didn't know. Scott didn't know that I got beat up on the floor. Because <laughs> <laughs> until, until I think it was a couple months ago. Yeah, when well, we were in Baltimore. Yeah. And I told you, I was like, "Hey, Scott, you know I got beat up." You know, and he was like, "What?" I said, "Listen, when Jackie threw the bouquet, somebody knocked me out to catch the bouquet." And then you play the video back, and lo and behold. You see, it's on video. Yeah, I saw. I was like, oh! I was on the floor. On the floor. And heels on in my jumpsuit. Somebody <laughs> knocked me out to get the bouquet. Oh, my gosh. I got to see this video. I mean, it's, it's, oh. it's, so, I mean, it's so embarrassed. I mean, I, I gathered myself up. I played it off. I was like, ah, you know, clapping. I'm just looking around like, you serious? You can't be embarrassed if you got pushed. That's a whole different thing. It's so something different like, if you well, slip. But. Yo, you should have done a bar. like, foul! Foul! I had heels on, but I was like midair because it flew above. And like literally because somebody pushed me, you know, it went down to the person behind me. So, so Scott, just quickly tell us your perspective of it. What wrestling theme did you come out to? Um, okay. So, first, I came out to Evolution, Line in the Sand, when I was walking with my mom and my dad down the aisle. I take great pride in that. That was cool, because originally, the plan was for me and my groomsmen to walk down to Evolution. But, of course, my wife would not let me do that. So I told my mom and my dad, and my mom asked me, what is that place? She's like, I tell them, don't worry about it. It's fine. Because she was like, what kind of rock music is this? She was like, I told her it was wrestling music. She was like, and Jackie said yes. I was like, yeah, kind of. I was, I was a little surprised when I heard it. I was like, what is this? And then she was it, like. It mixed with wedding music, you know? No, because I wanted to have... 
Like it was my wedding too. I love my wife. Like, but it's my day too. I want to have something interesting. Like, but that song though. <laughs> I thought you were gonna come down to Mr. Perfect or something. You know, something know. a little more with a little more majesty to it. No, 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 no. You know, I was no because. The Bret Hart's music, you know? Because <laughs> we I was supposed to walk down with my boys. I was like, yo, me and my boys, we're going to walk down to Evolution. And then she, Jackie's like, the one of the bridesmaids going to walk down to? I don't know. You, uh, uh. So she was like, no, they have to walk with the bridesmaids. So I was like, fine. But I'm still playing this damn song. And I just walked out. I did this down the aisle. I know Vic looked at me like, what? Is this yeah, boy? I got, pictures, I got pictures and videos of you. Oh, going cool. I, I went like this, and my dad looked at me like, "What is that? Don't worry about it." <laughs> no, but leave it. Up overall, <laughs> hey, it's my wedding too. Don't let her say it's her wedding. It's my damn wedding too. Anyway, well, I, thank you. You definitely left your mark in there. Thank you. We can, we can tell who came up with what, and that was all you. <laughs> Our last segment features former political reporter Jenny Hopkinson, who discusses her two passions, which included journalism and playing ice hockey, the latter of which she continues to do with the Washington Wolves C-Team. How did you get an interest in journalism? Did you write in high school? Did you write in middle school and things like that? Yeah, so I was always a good writer. Like, I don't know, that was the thing I, I could do. And so I, when I was like six or seven, I don't know, eight, I don't know. And like my family got their first computer and that dates me a bit. But you remember that, I'm sure, right? We're of the age that remembers that. And so, I don't know, maybe I was a little bit older. You know, we had this like really clunky software that you could like make your own newspaper. And I definitely made this many times and like sent it to family and did all that. So, you know, when I was in high school and I was managing editor of the high school paper like my parents weren't surprised so that's how I ended up at Maryland because they had a good journalism program and I liked that it was a big state school I a lot of journalism programs I was between Maryland and BU at the end and I felt like you know I went for an accepted students day at BU and they were like oh yeah like you know Boston could be a really interesting city politically if John Kerry wins and it's like, well, D.C. is going to be more interesting regardless of what happens. And of course, we know how John Kerry's presidential run ended. So, yeah, so I ended up in Maryland and, and really loved it and had a great time. And, yeah, like had class with Sharon, though I didn't really know her very well until we got to the Daily together. But, yeah, so was, I think, yeah, I just it was one of those things that I was always <laughs> no one was surprised, I guess, when I got into it. What was the aspect of journalism that you liked the most? Was it telling stories? Was it finding more about people? I, I know there's so many different ways. I always see it like this. Some people, they're all about ferreting out the truth. There's other people who feel like everyone has a story to tell. There's so many unique things. And, you know, a lot of people go different ways. Yeah, I liked the storytelling. And I think that goes back to like what I said earlier, that like real life is always more interesting than fiction. And so I just I think I probably asked too many questions. <laughs> That probably sets you up to be a good reporter when you're a kid. But yeah, telling stories. And then you realize very quickly that it's so important what journalists do. You know, we think about it as telling stories, but like it's keeping people accountable. It's making sure people know what's going on in their community. And and that's really, really important. People knowing what's happening, what's happening at the county commission, what's happening at town hall, what's happening in the police department, what's happening at the schools, seeing their kids track results. Like that's all really important. 
so yeah, I mean, I think I was definitely more on the telling stories side, but I think once I really started getting into it, I realized that the value is just so important. Just going into the run of journalism, when did you know? Was there a story or a time in the office that you knew you made it into journalism? When did I know? Um, oh, gosh. I mean, there were moments that I knew that I loved it. You know, I pitched a story. There's an island in the middle of the Pocomoke River that has goats on it that Snow Hill feeds. And I was like, that's cool. And then I got a lift to the island from the public works director on, I think, his personal boat because they were feeding the goats. Like, you know, you have these cool moments. But I think the flashiest story that I ever did, we'll, we'll do that one. And this, I left Politico shortly thereafter, but I wrote a story about how the Trump administration had put a lot of political appointees in at USDA who, like, didn't really have ag policy backgrounds. Like, some of them were, like, you know, they'd been good campaign volunteers and the administration had given them jobs, but they were coming from, like, selling phones at AT AT&T or, like, right out of college in, like, high-profile positions. So I wrote that story and... Rachel Maddow picked it up on NBC and all of a sudden my Twitter is blowing up. I didn't see it because I was minding my, yeah, I was doing something else, but all of a sudden my Twitter is blowing up. And then the same story ended up being in a, oh, what's his name? Mike Lewis book. I'd have to look it up, but it's like one of these political books about like the beginning of the Trump administration that like everybody's, you know, kind of liberal uncle reads and Yeah, I still haven't read that either. But um, all of a sudden, my dad calls one day and he's like, your work is like you are in this book. You're quoted in this book and your work is quoted like my friend found it and gave me the copy of golf. Like, why didn't you tell me? Oh, sorry about that. I mean, I'd heard about it, but I haven't read it. So I couldn't tell you. So, yeah, like that was probably the biggest like, like, I don't want to say that was the pinnacle because I think there were much more interesting things I did. But that was one of those like, oh, yeah, I that's me. Cool. To remember the name of the book. How did you get interested in hockey and where did it all start? So I grew up in Southern Connecticut and it's just like a big hockey place. Like all of New England is, but like every town has a rank. And on Friday night, there were skating lessons and everyone learned how to skate. And all the moms kind of sat in the stands with tumblers of like spiked hot chocolate basically. <laughs> and like hung out while we all skated and then there was like a free skate afterward. So I learned how to skate as a kid because my mom wanted to sit and like chit chat with her spiked hot chocolate with her friends who were the parents of my friends. I was fine at it. Like I was never going to be a figure skater. I'm also just kind of built like a tree trunk. So like grace and poise are not my thing and never have been and never will be. So I learned to skate. Wasn't awful. Wasn't, was never going to be a figure skater. Um, my brother and I learned at the same time, he's only a year and a half older than me. So we kind of did all those things together. And he was just much better than I was. And I think he probably would have been a really good figure skater. But I think there was a lot of pressure on him to play hockey because that's what every seven, eight, nine, ten 10 year old boy in, in Southern Connecticut or probably most of New England is pressured into doing. So he played hockey and I showed no interest in it because no one really wants to be dragged around a cold rink when their brother's having fun and they just have to sit and dance while their mom drinks them. No. She didn't drink that much spiked hot chocolate. I just feel like I should note that there wasn't that much in the hot chocolate. But anyway, so my my brother played like the town rec league um, hockey. And then in, I guess, winter of 1998, he was like, okay, I'm done. You know, like everybody else is more competitive, and like more into this than I am. So I think I'm going to tag out. And of course, 
winter of 1998, speaking of the Olympics, was the first Winter Olympics that had women's ice hockey as a sport. So all of a sudden, like, I've, I've plugged that I love the Olympics. I, the Winter Olympics happens to be my favorite because every sport is a person throwing their body down a sheet of ice in some way, shape, or form. Summer Olympics is great. I'm now watching Australia and the Russians play water polo, so that's going well. But there's that like added like sheet of iceness about the Winter Olympics. And so, you know, we'd watch the hockey tournament and here you have the U.S. and Canada in their first Olympic matchup which like is still the best game, I would argue, and you're going to tell me I'm wrong and cite some crazy statistic about it, but I would argue that the USA-Canada women's gold medal game, which it normally is them, uh, is like one of the best games in sports every four years. Like it's just, there is so much history there. There's like, you know, other teams, like they're getting a lot better, but like for the longest time, women's hockey elsewhere just hasn't been on the same level. And like the times when the gold medal game is not USA Canada is when they're in the same bracket and knock each other out sooner. So anyway, watch that. And the Canadians at the time had these crazy pink jerseys and I was like, that's a bad idea. And I'm really glad women's sports has gotten past the pink. <laughs> yeah. So I watched that. And then that spring, my brother's like finishing his final season of Pee Wee Hockey. And my father's so excited that he doesn't have to get up at, you know, the crack of dawn to take my brother to the rink. And there was a flyer at the rink that said they were launching a girls league. And I was like, I want to play. And my father was like, oh, at least we have the gear. <laughs> you know, like we're not buying you anything new. But yeah, so I've kind of played on and off ever since. I played uh, through middle school. I was good enough to make, and this is a resentment right here. I was good enough to make the travel team, like the, the like local girls travel team. And in, in Connecticut at the time, there were quite a few and there was just happened to be like they were starting one out of the town that I lived in and I made that when I was a uh, in eighth grade and then I had to quit when I was in high school because my parents made me do marching band and I'm still salty about it uh so I I played field hockey instead of, in high school and that was a different different game altogether but I kept playing like rec league women's or girls when I could uh, I played with the boys until probably like 17 ish I think through junior year and at that point, well, I guess junior year wasn't 17, but I played with the boys through junior year, just kind of like local rec league hockey. And at that point, like they just started to get significantly bigger than me. And I was as fast as them and potentially as good as them, but I wasn't faster or better. And so I just started getting injured because when you play contact hockey with people who are significantly larger than you, then that happens. So yeah. And then, so went to Maryland didn't really think about playing hockey in Maryland. Doesn't have a full like university team. Sophomore year decided to play club hockey. Um, and that was awesome and made some of my like favorite people at Maryland or made some of my best friends at Maryland playing hockey there. So did that for a couple of years. One of my misgivings about, or one of my like hesitations about moving to the shore was that I wouldn't be able to play hockey. And so I didn't play hockey when I, uh, when I was out there. But then when I moved back, the DC area has a pretty good like women's hockey community you know there's quite a few people here of like all ages there's a lot of learn to play programs you know and then there's a lot of women who played in college played d1 played club played you know in club at some you know new england upper midwestern schools is you know d something so there's a lot of folks who play here there's a really strong community um and so i was floating around through like rec leagues and then i don't know five or six years ago 
I started playing for a, I'm like an adult woman who plays for a travel hockey team, like kids do, you know, like I, um, so, you know, like every weekend I'm wherever, you know, in normal times, of course, COVID, COVID put a damper on that. But so, yeah, so I play for a team now, my, my like regular season team is a team called the Washington Wolves. It's the best, you know, it's so hard to make friends as an adult. And I feel really lucky that I stumbled into a great crew of friends playing hockey who are like the smartest and the coolest people. And I'm so lucky. And this is all to say that hockey is a super fun sport. Everyone should try it and just be okay with the bruises. And that also like adult sports are great because you make friends. Um, so yeah, so that's what I do now. We're hopefully heading into a season again this fall, kind of TBD to see what Delta does. And of course, DC just had a mask mandate put into effect. So our practice rink and our home ice is actually in the district. So we'll see what that means. But yeah, I'm like pretty hopeful that we're going to have a hockey season again this winter because we didn't last year. What positions did you, were you a defenseman? Did you play forward or? I'm a forward. I play wing and I'm pretty flexible on either side, but I am one of those players. I am not the fastest. I am not like also not good at talking myself up apparently, but I, I am one of those players who like, I can figure out how to be in position, but I'm also like, my skill set is getting in the way, right? Like, and, and in any sport, you need people get in the way of the other team because that frees up other people to like do things like score and make nice plays. But my particular, like if, if getting in the way got points, like be real high, uh, it doesn't, but screening goalies and like blocking shots, real good at all that. But yeah, so I play wing and pretty much always have. How's your wrist shot and one-timer? <laughs> uh, given that I had, like, I played last night just in, like, a local beer league, and given that I missed all my shots, I had, like, three breakaways, and I didn't score on any of them, so need some work. I'm going to blame COVID on that, though. Um, it's been a long, long off season. Okay, if there was a scouting report, a Jenny Hopkinson scouting report on your hockey abilities, how would you best describe your, your style of play, plus... Who did you try to emulate? So I'll, I'll take the second one first. I am not a like bottomless pit of memorizing sports facts. And like, I've never been good at like following teams. I'm also not good at like watching TV shows at the scheduled time that they're on. It's just like, I don't know. Really, the, the whole watching things on demand is, is really good for me. But so I've like, and growing up, like I grew up in Rangers territory. My family didn't really watch games like, we went to them every once in a while, but like it wasn't a thing. So I, I'm like one of those people that like plays sports, but I don't really, you know, like I don't watch them. I, I root for the Caps as part of my like blanket DC sports teams minus the Washington football team role. And like, like going to Caps games, like I know who Ovechkin is and TJ Oshie and, you know, like can pull the Caps players out of the lineup at this point in time. Um, but yes, yeah, so it's not like I'm like trying to be cool like someone else. This is the Jenny Hutchinson's style of play. I don't know if there's a professional player that's like big on getting in the way. Um, But like, it's also always fun. Like um, what now that we have women's hockey players are kind of becoming better known and you've got like Glamour twins, and you've got all these other people. So that's always really fun. And of course we have the fledgling WNHL, but yeah, I just don't watch enough hockey. Maybe I'd be better if I did. I mean, again, my style of play is, is the getting in the way style of play. Like, and it works, right? Like, if you are screening a goalie, sometimes you get the goal off it. Like, you know, I'm a, like, garbage goal getter and stuff like that. But they still count. So um, I'll defend that. I uh, agree. So you weren't the enforcer type on the ice, were you? <laughs> so I, like, I am sturdy. 
So I like, you know, and like women's hockey is inherent, like has to be in mega, sorry, men's hockey players. Like it to a point has to be like faster and kind of crisper than men's hockey because you, you can't just throw your body into someone to get a puck. Like you actually have to play the puck versus like play the man. I am like kind of taller in some cases and like, like sturdier than some people. And, and it, less in travel but like when you play summer league and there's like different levels of play I have to be really careful because like and I think this is the case in a lot of sports like when you're playing rec level but like if I go up against a player who's like really new or like not that sturdy like I'm gonna get the penalty (laughs) because it's like I'm the sturdy one so they're gonna run into me and I'm gonna be fine and they're gonna fall over and then the whistle's gonna blow and I'm like I didn't I didn't I just, I just stay upright well. Like that's, I didn't do anything, but that's fine, right? Um, it's reverse, also, it's reverse prison rules where you go in. The, you know, they always say attack the biggest person in the prison just to show that you're tough. Yeah, yeah, basically, basically. But it's, it's less so when, like, you know, I play travel with the wolves. Then I, everyone's, everyone's very good. But um, yeah, got, got to be a little bit careful when you're playing, like, you know, beer summer league. Mm-hmm. Uh, did you ever think about coaching or some, even not as a head coach, or even as assistant or something like that? Yeah. You know, I just, I don't know if I'd be that good. <laughs> I've not thought about it. I worry that I don't have enough. I think I'd like really basic learn to place clinics. I could probably be somewhat helpful, but I don't know if I'd be good enough to coach. Maybe that's not the thing to admit on a sports podcast, but, but then I, I also think there's a level of knowing the technical side of like, when you make a wrist shot, like, at this point, and I'm not getting any better at hockey in parks. I'm getting older, so it's like those like competing factors there. But like I, I know how to do a wrist shot. I know my body knows how to do all of that, but I I don't always know that I can explain it to someone else. And I think to be a good coach, you have to be really good at being like, here's what you do, but like here's the pieces as to like how you do it. And and I think I've played for so long at this point that like a lot of it is muscle memory. And I think that also means that a lot of bad habits are there to stay. But yeah, I just think you're stuck with stuff at a certain time. And if you can't explain, like break down, like a crossover backward skating into like individual pieces and explain it to someone, like I can do all of those things, but I I, I can do them because I've done them so many times. For anyone who decides to get into learning how to ice skate, what is the biggest piece of advice that you'd give them? It's gonna hurt the first day. <laughs> but I think ice skating, it's not like running either. Like people are like, oh, it's just like running on ice. It's not like running. Cause you're, you're going like out and back instead of just forward. It's my running with my hands for those people listening and not watching. But you know, it's not the same as running on ice. It's like a different motion. But I think it's one of those things. I think the first day or two are the hardest. And then the learning curve is it starts really steep and then tapers. I think it's you know, once you get over that hurdle of getting those fundamentals down with, with a good coach who's not me, um, like I think the learning curve is, is pretty straightforward. That wraps up our look back at some of the interviews from the year 2021. But while these were some of the interviews that made the cut, there are plenty more that you can listen to on the Sports Refuge website and anywhere podcasts are heard, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, the iHeartRadio app and more. Next time, in celebration of Super Bowl 56, it's our football spectacular. In this episode, I'll be talking with Jersey aficionado and Washington NFL fan Ben Penserga 
as we discuss the announcement of the rebranding of the former Washington Redskins and Washington football team to the newly christened Washington Commanders. After that, I talk with sports gambler and co-host of the Authentic and the Beard podcast, Tim the Beard Stewart, who will discuss betting while giving his thoughts on some of the Super Bowl prop bets ahead of the game. Until next time, this is Earl Holland saying thanks for listening and have a good one. You've been listening to the Sports Refuge podcast. For more information about our show and our guests, go to our website at thesportsrefuge.com. Follow us on Twitter at The Sports Refuge, on Instagram at Sports Refuge Sports Blog, and on Facebook at The Sports Refuge Sports Blog. Thank you for listening.